Hi, welcome to a special podcast of the Tanakh Talks podcast. And today we're going to be doing something a little different. We're looking at two chapters in Tanakh, the 56th, 55th and 56th chapter of Yeshayahu, Isaiah, and of course chapter 8 and 9 in Yermiah. What do these two chapters have in common? They were both chosen to be the Haftarot for Tisha B'Av, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. But what I want to demonstrate here before going into it, and of course I preface everything I'm going to say with the hope that I'll be able to take this podcast down and give a podcast on all the prophecies and all the Haftarot that of redemption and salvation that should come very soon among us for ourselves, for all of Israel and all humanity. So, what we're going to do is look outside the Haftarot for a bit, for about two, three minutes, and then look inside them. Because I want to demonstrate a very important idea here. And that, of course, is the title of the podcast for those who are um, clicking in. The question I want to ask is, what holiday does Tisha B'Av remind you of the most? And this is a question that is quite obvious, you know, okay, fast day, fast day. Well, what other fast days do I have? So people immediately point to Yom Kippur, and they wouldn't be incorrect in two very specific um, realms. First of all, the Isurim, the laws of Inui, the prohibitions that we have, whether eating, drinking, you know, Sicha, wearing leather shoes, all these um, prohibitions that are meant to make us feel uncomfortable, if not even to make us feel a bit level of suffering, these are, of course, um, part one of the... These are the first of the comparisons that we would make. The second comparison is, in fact, that you'll actually find certain prayers that are shared between them, specifically the story of the Ten Martyrs. If you notice that all of a sudden in the additional service in Musaf of Yom Kippur, after going through this great discussion of the procession on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, you know, Mare Kohen Gadol, da 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 da, you know, this big dramatic moment, we're all so happy and remembering how great it was in Yom Kippur, then we suddenly go into this, oi, it's all lost to us, and then we go straight into a kina, a dirge, a memory of the Asarar Harugimaku, the ten martyrs who were killed by the Roman Empire that was placed in there. And of course, that same kina, that same dirge, is placed in the keynote that we have. We say almost this, it's a little shorter, with a little variation of theme and tone, but it's functionally the same kina. So we say Yom Kippur, Tisha B'Av, that's a really good match. But there's something very interesting about them. And this, having set up the comparisons to say, look at how similar they are, we have to look at what makes them different. And what makes them different, I think, is very simple. As much as we are not eating, and we are not drinking, and we are not wearing our fancy leather shoes, etc., on Yom Kippur, the mode is solemn, but it's not sad. In fact, the Gemara says there are two great days of happiness in the Jewish calendar year. The first is Tu Ba'av, when singles are matched off and married. Great, great holiday coming up next week. And we'll do a little special share on that next week, please God. And the second is Yom Kippur. And it's very hard to imagine Yom Kippur, but it is a very, very happy day. It's a joyous day. It's a day we should rejoice. Why? We have a mitzvah to do shuvah. We have the ability to return. And that's what makes Yom Kippur special. Tisha B'Av is not a happy day. 
And I think I'm going to make some people uncomfortable if I'm going to say, Tisha B'Av is not even a day for tshuva. Of course, we should always repent every single day. But the goal of Tisha B'Av is not to do tshuva. The purpose of Tisha B'Av is not to listen to Shurim and take it about how bad gossip and slander and Lashon Hara are. The purpose of Tisha B'Av is not introspection and how we can be better. That's not the point of Tisha B'Av at all. That wonderfully optimistic mitzvah, and it is optimistic, because to say that A, change is both possible and it is feasible, that's a very cheerful thing to say. That's an amazing, an amazing thing to say. But Tisha B'Av is not about that. Tisha B'Av is coming to grips with tragedy, with sadness. And I realize doing tshuva is always our go-to move. It's like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar skyhook or a Claude Lemieux chief shot. Okay, these are, if you don't know who those are, don't worry about them. They're old sports players with a little a Gordie Howe elbow. Okay, these are all go-to moves. And generally, whenever something's gone wrong, the Jewish instinct is always, well, how can we be better? How can we do better? How can we improve? We have this responsibility, and but because we have the capability to become better human beings. That's a great thing. Not tomorrow. Not Tisha B'Av. That's not what it's about. Tisha B'Av is about sadness. It's about loss. And sometimes we are so afraid of that. We are so afraid to mourn that we look even to tshuva as a distraction. With that introduction in mind, and I heard, this has been an idea that's been in my head um, since I heard it mentioned in passing by Rabbi Moshe Terrigan of um, Yeshiva at Heart Sion. I want to thank him for the putting the original thought in my mind to germinate. I want to look at the two haftorot now. There are two haftorot we read, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. The Haftar of the morning is Yermiyahu, chapter 8. And it begins as follows. Asof afisem num Hashem. I will completely destroy them, says the word of Hashem. He's echoing here his predecessor, Tefania, who said, Asof asafti, well, Panem, I'm going to destroy everything from all the, um, from on the face of the earth. This is Tefania's opening message. Yermiyahu is a little bit later than him. Tzifani clearly speaks in the opening years of Yoshiao's reign. For those who are curious, there's a book that just came out on Tzifani, Nakum Kabakuk Tzifani by Magid, and I really strongly recommend um, picking it up. It's worth the read. I'm joking, of course, being the author of the book, but I still recommend it, because we don't get a chance to read those in Nevi'im, and it's good to have to study Nevi'im. Now, Tzifani says, I will destroy Yermiyahu, comes and repeats it, I will destroy. There is no chapter that is harsher in Yermiyahu's um, book. There are 52 chapters in Yermiyahu. A very basic overview. Yermiyahu lived for the last 40 years of the kingdom of Yehuda, from the year 626 to 586, when the first Beitimish was destroyed. For the first 22 years of his prophe- 18 years of his prophesizing, Yoshiao, the righteous, the great king, is there and it's really the last chance for the Jewish people to rebuild themselves and then the last two decades are under a succession of ineffective at best and evil kings at worst from Yoachaz to Yoachim to Yoachin to Tzidkiyahu 
people who cannot be trusted, who make deals with the enemies, who refuse to confront the inevitable, that they are going to have to make some sort of peace with the Babylonians. Yermial, I heard one rabbi say Yermial's goal is to prepare the people to live in Galut and Babel. That was never Yermial's goal. He never intended that. What he wanted was for them to accept the loss of levels of sovereignty and to live under a Babylonian rule, but to stay in the land of Israel. He was not trying to get them ready for Babel. It's only Ezekiel, Yechezkel, who's that's his job. Anyways, this is the most harsh of the chapters. It's a one large unit. It discusses how thorough the destruction is going to be. Okay, there will be no grapes on the grain Now, Normally when you go picking, you pick the healthy and the ripe fruits, and you leave all the other, either the fruits, fruits that are spoiled or the fruits that are not ripe yet, i.e. the young and the old, the way the metaphor goes. But no, the Babylonians are going to destroy everything. Okay, let's go to the fortified cities. Maybe we'll be safe there. But no, Hashem has given us, there we will only find poison water. Now, the idea of drinking appears a lot in Yermiel. In fact, there's a whole chapter, chapter 25, in which he discusses how all the nations of the world are going to have to drink from God's goblet, i.e. accept the bitter drought within that in fact the Babylonians are going to win and they're going to lose. We hope for peace, but there's no good. For a time of healing, behold, there's terror. Okay, these are wonderful, wonderful, beautiful Hebrew. From Don has heard the snorting of his horses, meaning you can hear them all the way from Don. Don is all the way up in the north. That's the one edge. We always talk about the biblical land of Israel going from Don to Beersheba. And everybody is quaking. And there's snakes and disturbance that cannot be charmed. Now that's fascinating. Because what's the imagery of snakes in Tanakh? Of course, it doesn't start off very positive, but it gets worse in there. But Arum Haya, he's the most crafty, he's the most clever. The Jews always try to be too smart sometimes. I won't say always, but sometimes they try to be too smart. Oh, I can make a deal with the Babylonians, but then I can make an alliance with the Egyptians. I can make a deal with the Assyrians. I promise to be wear allegiances to the Assyrians, but I'll then make a deal with their Arameans. And they go back and forth and try to... Sn- but these snakes, says the Abarbanel, cannot be charmed. You can't control them. Don't think that you can control them the same way you control them. They're going to come at you. And the people are calling, where's Hashem? Is this king not within it? And of course, you know, where's Hashem in Jerusalem? He goes, there's no room. There's too full of idols. And we're not saved. And now he describes, you know, the depth of destruction, the most famous line, is there no balm in Gilad? Is there no medicine that's to be brought to cure this? Where is there no healer? Somebody could turn my... If my eyes were a fountain, I would... You know, the water would flow unceasingly because of the copious tears I would shed. It's the most beautiful, powerful imagery. Somebody should make for me a desert just so I could avoid them. And then he goes, I'm going to avoid them now. But after crying for them... I have to avoid them. Why? Because of the most fundamental sin that they commit, and that is the sin of dishonesty. They're not trustworthy. You can't rely on them. He gives them all sorts of various names. An adulterer, who somebody who cannot be trusted to the commitments he makes to his um, spouse. A traitor, somebody who cannot be trusted to the commitment that he has, every human being has of their country. They bend their tongues with, sh- with falsehood. It's a harsh, harsh attack. And therefore, since I can't do anything for them, says Hashem, since I can't trust them anymore, I can't continue the relationship. What a powerful indictment. Okay? Their tongue is a drawn arrow, speaking deceit. He, how can I not punish them? I can't 
trust them anymore. And it's such a powerful indictment. You can't trust them, and therefore they will be destroyed, and there'll be a rain, there'll be a dirge, and a wailing, and a mourning, and it's going to be so powerful, says Yermiel. Again, this is the most powerful, the most poignant of all the chapters. It's going to describe the destruction of the land of Israel and the exile to the Babylonians found in Yermiel. It ends with a two positive verses, but that's the goal here is as 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 the ending of every Haftorah, the goal here is we are not allowed to end with cheer, anything cheerful. Even the plaintive cry of the people, you know, in Echa, the last verse of Echa is not Hashi Venu Hashem Alecha Venashuva Kedem. That's not the last verse. We say it because that seems cheerful. Even that in itself is not so cheerful. If you think about it, in the concept said, well, if God will bring us back, we'll come back. But the people are themselves are waiting not to come back, To are not committing themselves that they're going to come back. The last verse of Eicha is, okay, even if you've completely rejected us, you've already raged sufficiently. The people have complained, you've done too much. This is the theme throughout Eicha, that God, whatever you we did, you overreacted. That's Yermiyahu. And that's the Haftorah for the morning. And it comes along, I think, it flows very nicely with the theme we've been talking about. You are not supposed to be doing tshuva. Eicha is not a cry for tshuva. Eicha is allowing mourners the right to mourn. Eicha is being with them. And when the Navi tries to rebuke them, Echa responds saying, no, I don't want to hear it. Yes, I may have made mistakes. But ad kedekach, so much, it's too much, says. Now we come to the Haftar for the afternoon. And here I think the fascinating switch takes place. Because if you know the halachot, the laws regarding Tisha B'av, some of the restrictions, the letter restrictions, are removed. We can now put on tefillin in the afternoon. We, we are not in such a lowly state that we can't even put on tefillin. We can put on tefillin. We can now sit on a couch and on a bed, you know, something comfortable. We can't sit in suffering. It's a much different mood, okay? It's almost anticipatory. And in Jewish tradition, the Messiah is born on the afternoon of Tisha B'Av. This is from the depths here, but only when you've gotten to the depths can you start to rebuild. I think the problem of doing, trying to do tshuva on Tisha B'av is you're trying to get over a problem you don't fully appreciate its the size of the problem. And sometimes you have to stop trying to solve them. You have to just sit back and comprehend what exactly happened. And only then can you properly find the answer. In this case, you know, problem solving immediately is counterproductive. But now we go to Yeshua. Now we go to Yeshua. It's in the last chapters of Yeshua. All the chapters of Nechama of consolation that are said, chapters 40 to 66, the second half, the most wonderful, beautiful chapters that have been written. And Yeshua begins, Dershu Hashem Behimatso Karo Bayotu Karo. He says, Call out to God, even when, not I would, when he's close, but it's not just when he's close. Even now, when you see the destruction, understand that he's close. And everybody should now, we, we get into the psukim that are talking about tshuva. Yazov rashad arkov v'ish aven makshotav v'yashova Hashem yirachameu. Let the wicked one forsake his way, the wicked man his thoughts, and then he can return to Hashem and God will show him mercy. And then he makes a fascinating statement. 
Perhaps the most important line in Noah Nebuah. Don't try to be smarter than God. We talked about your meow and how he emphasized how the Jews tried to be smarter than everybody else and they failed. Don't try to be smarter than God. Trust God. And what does that mean here? It means don't ever say to yourself, I can't do tshuva. Don't ever say, what I've done is so bad, I can't even repent. The first thing you have to believe is that change is possible. There's nothing, no such thing in the eyes of God as too late. And Yeshua says, this is where he gets the strength from. He goes, I promise to you, the rain and the snow will come from heaven and they don't return. But it, okay, so too my word comes out. It's not going to come. I promised you that things will be good in the end. And I just like rain goes down to um, earth and it brings new things to life. So too, the word of God, Hashem's word, the Torah comes down and he, in that, God promises that everything will work out in the end. I promise you that that will happen. What a cheerful, wonderful thought. But that's the switch. Come the afternoon of Tisha B'Av. Come the, then we can start talking about Tshuva. But we can't, shouldn't be aiming for that. Definitely not at the night. Definitely not even in the morning. The goal of the night in the morning is not to do Tshuva. The goal is to comprehend what we have to do. And these are and the rest of Yeshua is, again, Yeshua does not let us off the hook. Do justice and righteousness. My gu'ula is close to coming. It's going to happen. Every human can do this. Keep Shabbat. It's interesting. There's this, of all the mitzvot, that the Nevi'im point out, Yeshua has a special love for Shabbat. He says, Shabbat is how you keep in touch. Okay, he does it here. He does it. He'll do it on the Haftar for Yom Kippur, which we'll talk about a couple chapters later. But do righteousness thing, and as long as you're keeping Shabbat, everything will be all right. These are the two Haftarot. Very briefly, a quick overview of the um, what we read, and I think that they their placement and their message are so critical to understanding what we're trying to accomplish with this mournful day. We are not trying at the beginning to do tshuva. The goal is not to be spend the night studying Chafetz Chaim or and all the laws of gossip because because of the gossip the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed and anything like that. The goal is simply to mourn. Read through Echa. Read through it. Understand the sadness. And only when you can you reach that depth and you've done that, only at the very end can you start to turn and say, well, what can I do better? And we look to Yeshua'el, the prophet of Nechama to speak to us. With that, I wish everybody an easy fast, and may this be the last fast that we have to um, go before the coming of the redemption. Gula Shlema Bimherav Yemenu.